The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome to another edition of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host, Ian Fisher, filling in for Beth Heaton on a beautiful November morning in the Pacific Northwest. It's been a while since I've hosted the show, and I'm uh, really glad to be back with you. On today's show, we're going to discuss the role of paid work in the high school experience and all the ways that students can engage in professional opportunity as a way not only of cultivating strong habits, but of helping improve their college applications. But before we get to that, I'd like to continue our Schools in Application Workshop series. I was just looking at my calendar, and the last time I hosted this show, way back on September 8th, it had been 108 years since the Chicago Cubs had won the World Series. Uh, and I know my first guest, Karen Spencer, was up late last night until the final out and through the final celebration. Hey, Karen, what do you say? I'm here. Can you hear me? I can. Uh, I woke my children up to Go Cubs Go on iTunes because they were not so pleased. <laughs> they were pleased that they won. They were not pleased about being woken up that way. So You woke, um, you woke your kids up to yeah, celebrate the World super Series. Super excited, victory. very tired, so if I make no sense on this radio show today, please all forgive me. I'm a little groggy. <laughs> It's fine. You know, so an event like this only happens every 108 years, or hopefully it'll happen yeah, more exactly. frequently. Yeah, exactly. I'll be fully rested for the rest forward. of my days. <laughs> uh, so that's the big news in the world. But obviously, in college admissions, the big news is that we've just passed the November 1 deadline, um, which is a big breath of fresh air for students and for counselors like you and me. Uh, but we also know that this process doesn't end there either. I spent most of my afternoon yesterday emailing my students to congratulate them on being done with the first step of this process, but also telling them, hey, there's a lot more still to go. Um, so we've got a little bit of radio silence from colleges between now and when they start to hear back. When do you think students can start to hear back from schools if they've applied early action or early decision? What, what, what should they be looking for over the next couple of months? Well, I think if you applied early action or early decision, you know, generally speaking, and again, generally there's no hard and fast rules to any of this, which is frankly why you and I are both gainfully employed, but, um, (laughs) you know, generally speaking, most students will hear back from mid to late December, um, and and you can be getting any kind of sort of news, but let me, let me actually go back just one step. Just, I think it's important for kids who have applied EA or ED or even rolling admissions, just make sure their file is complete. Um, if you sent it on November 1st, please don't call yet. Um, it takes colleges a while to process all the information. You and every other person applying to that school generally wait until the last minute to press the submit button. Um, so definitely, you know, give them at least a week to get everything, um, you know, filed and, and whatnot. But if you haven't heard back from a school of any 
kind, you know, the comment app does not appear to have been downloaded. There's no email correspondence saying thanks for applying. There's kind of true radio silence. Um, that's when you want to make sure to kind of follow up and make sure they got your applications. Quirky things happen. Stranger things have happened. Um, so you want to make sure, A, that they received it. Um, and, again, the, in the digital age, um, that's pretty easy to see, you know, that they've downloaded your Common App or, or whatever the case may be. Um, right. But that was and not you, your question I recognize. Usually, usually what they'll do is as soon as you submit an application, they give you a student number. And then you can log into maybe one of their application checklist sites um, and, and just type in your student ID number. And it'll tell you which things have arrived and which things are still outstanding. So it's a way for you to go and double check on your counselor, teacher recommendation letters, and make sure that the scores are there. And just verify. You don't want to just sort of press submit and then walk away for two months. Uh, so that's good. That's a good reminder, Karen. Um, so things are in, everything's been verified. Um, let's, let's say we're applying ED. I've applied ED to a school. Um, what are my sort of options here? There, there are a few forks in the road I could get in. I might not get in. I might get the fur. What, what are sort of the things that students can expect, uh, expect from an ED application? So, yeah, so you've kind of hit all three of them, generally speaking. So the one option is that you get admitted, which is great. Especially if you're ED, right, you're done. You can, you know, take, uh, you know, a big sigh of relief, um, hopefully, because that should be your first trade yeah, school. Hopefully should that's be a big excited. sigh of relief for you um, because you're going. Um, that's, that's kind of the, that's the kicker with ED is that you got to go. Um, so if that's the case, you are kind of, you know, smooth sailing, presuming you keep up your grades. We can talk about that in a minute. Um, mm-hmm. But you're kind of you're kind of done, and that's great. Um, outside of the financial aid process, um, if you get denied, that is a bummer. Although I always like at EA and ED um, if they know they're not going to take you, frankly, to deny you, um, because I think it gives students enough time to um, kind of come to grips with that denial, get excited about their second choice school and the other schools on their list, so that by the time April rolls around and the rest of the decisions are coming through. Um, you kind of let that, that wound has had time to heal. Um, right. The other thing that could happen at some schools, and not every school does this, but I'd say the majority do, in my experience, um, is they could also defer you. And this is, I think, what um, confuses kids a little bit, um, and parents for sure. Um, deferring means that we are going to roll you back into the regular decision pool. So all those applications that are coming in in January, we're going to read you again with them. So you get a second read with the regular decision applications. Now, the hard thing about deferring is people read into this on occasion things that they shouldn't um, in good and bad ways. So um, at Georgetown, where I used to work, we deferred everybody who didn't get in at early action. In this case, it was early action. But um, we deferred everybody, right? That was not necessarily a good sign for you. Who could be that remotely well qualified and we would have deferred you? Um, You could have been really close to being admitted and we would have deferred you. So defer... Um, I think generally speaking, um, you know, for early decision at least, um, I, th- well, I think it's really hard to read at early decision. I think it really kind of frustrates people like you and me when they defer ED because ED is generally easier to get into than regular decision pretty much universally right. at most schools. So I always question when people get deferred at ED because I think, well, if you're going to take them in the round where you take the most students, why would you take them um, later? But it happens. Sometimes it will take you later. Um, but that's really what a deferral means. Yeah, and I think that if you get deferred in early decision, you're right because ED is not quite as competitive as regular. If you're deferred in early decision, that means that your application as it stands right now is not competitive. And so when right. we deferred students in ED, what we were often looking for was some change 
in their application between that early round and the regular round. And that might mean we just want to see a full semester of grades because you're on the upward trend, but we want to make sure that you're sort of finalizing that upward trend. It might mean that we're looking for a letter that sort of updates your interest or updates some accomplishments that you've had between that early round and the regular round, but just sort of sitting back and waiting after a deferral and hoping that things are going to improve is, is really unlikely because if you were good enough to get in in, in the regular round than you would have gotten in in the early round as it stood. Um, what about uh, ED2 is a really interesting thing that a lot of people ask about. They get confused on what ED2 is, and it's got that number attached to it, so it seems a little bit different from regular ED. Can you apply ED2 if you've applied ED somewhere else? Um, and, and what are the sort of rules around ED2? So ED2 is um, not as common of a practice at colleges as ED1. It's definitely... Um, it, it less, like I said, less common. It usually happens in a January test time, or I'm sorry, January time frame, sometimes um, first week, you know, first of February, but usually in, in mid-January. Um, and ED2 is really a, a, an opportunity for students to apply uh, to a binding contract because either they weren't ready to go um, at the or in November 1st for whatever not ready night, right? They didn't have their testing in order. They, um, again, to your point, were on an upward trend and they really thought it would really help their case for uh, an admissions officer to see their whole first semester transcript. Mm-hmm. Um, they may have, and frankness, this happens a lot, applied ED somewhere else, didn't get in, got either deferred or denied, and said, well, my second choice is over here, actually, and my best chance is ED with them, so I'm going to apply ED there. So right. you can apply ED2 as long as you haven't gotten in ED somewhere else. So let's say you applied ED to school X, you get denied, you are free to apply ED round two to this other school. If you And if you apply ED1 to a school and you get deferred, you may also apply ED2 Correct. to a new school. But if you get into that new that school... Contract. If you cannot you cannot apply you cannot then attend that school you got deferred to if you get in in the regular round. So once you enter into an ED contract with a school, you can only have one at a time with a, with any institution. Then you have to go if you get in. And you know one of my students is doing this. She's she wants to go to DC. She has her heart set on DC. She clearly wants George Washington. That's ED one. And American is a clear second choice for her. And that's ED two. That's the strategy that she's laid out for herself. So that makes sense to me. But you want to be careful whenever you enter into a binding agreement with a school that it's not just, well, I want to up my chances of getting in. Um, so, so be cautious with how you, you use ED2. Um, let's move over to early action. That's much more restrictive. I think one of the big questions, or much less restrictive, one of the big questions that students ask me is, so what happens when I get in early action? What do I do then? Uh, how do I let colleges so know what I've decided? I love, because there's really no downside to early action, in my opinion. It's all the benefits of ED, maybe not the higher acceptance rate necessarily, but all the good goodness of having in potentially an early decision in your hands without the binding contract. So it's nice to just say, look, I got in somewhere, you know, early action. It's great to have an acceptance. I'm always so much surprised, always surprised by how many kids are convinced they're not going to get in anywhere, which rarely happens. Right. Um, so early action is great for the students to get in, but you have all the way until May 1st to make a decision about whether or not you'd like to attend that institution. Um, so you've got a lot of time to make that call. Some kids know they really absolutely want to go and they're committed, they're ready to enroll right now, and that's fine. If that's you, you know, you would have applied early decision if that school had offered it, great. You can put a deposit down and be done with it and, and, and call it a day. 
if you say, you know what, I want to see where else I get in because I want to compare financial aid packages or I just want to see if this one dream school pans out or whatever the case may be, you still have until May 1st to make a decision. Yeah, and, and this is also true. Everything you're saying is exactly right also for schools that have restrictive early action policies. So even if the school like Stanford or Harvard or Yale or Princeton limits your uh, opportunity to apply to other early action schools, it's still it's not a binding agreement. So you still have until May 1st to decide whether you'd like to attend those institutions. Um, one of the and things, the same Karen, for rolling admission schools where you may have gotten an early read there as well. Exactly, exactly. One of the things that you and I kind of hate uh, is if a student gets into a school early action and then goes back and changes their list. They say, I've gotten into this school and now I want to change and I want to apply to a totally different set of schools. So I'm going to apply to all reaches. Um, what, what do you think about changing your list in, let's say, December after you hear back from an early action school in the affirmative? Well, I think I would say, like, what has changed exactly? right? The strategy going in and, and what you like shouldn't have changed. Why did it change? Because you got into this school. I think what happens is students get a little confident, right? Like, oh, well, I got into X. So now I'm going to apply to Y and Z right. who are harder to get into. I think it's, um, it's kind of a little boost to their ego. So now they're feeling kind of sometimes overly confident about their chances elsewhere. Um, right. And listen, it's a free country. I always say if that's what you want to do, I don't agree with that, but it's, again, it's a free country. I think the issue there is if you find out, let's say, December 20th that you got into your EA school and you say, I'm going to apply to all the Ivies now because I'm brilliant because that school wanted me. And <laughs> by the way, those are due on January 1st. You've got 10 days to write right. all these essays, right? It's, you're, you're not going to do that well, first of all. You don't have time to do that well. It's a lot more. Generally speaking, when people are adding schools, they're usually adding reach schools, to your point. Um, reach schools for most students generally involve more essay writing than less. Um, and I think, like, what's, what was, what's the point here, right? Is, is the, I would say if your list is in order at the beginning, this whole process is going to be fine. I say if your list is a mess at the beginning, this process is going to be a mess. And you're muddying the waters. Like, whatever thought process you got to creating this really good list to begin with, you should stick with because that's how you landed here to begin with, that these schools reflect your interests, your, your, um, you know, your major choices, your culture choices, um, they fit your profile. Um, why get off the track? Because all of a sudden, this one school admitted you. I don't really understand that philosophy. Right. It's like, uh, you know, you're going to the blackjack table and you've decided you're not going to hit above 16. And then all of a sudden you start rolling a little bit and you're making some money. You're not going to start hitting on 17 all of a sudden. That's a good strategy when you started. And it's good strategy even when you're up. And I think the strategy needs to be fairly consistent. Um, That's an analogy for parents out there since most students are not yet gambling, uh, (laughs) playing the blackjack tables. Imagine you ask that kind of cute boy out at school and he says, yes, it does not mean you should now go ask out Brad Pitt. So they're going to say no. He's going to say no. So let's not make that jump too large here. Right. That's right. And, you know, you've highlighted a really interesting uh, and important point for students, which is that you can't sit back and wait to see what happens with your early schools before you continue to make progress on the rest of your applications. So if you've applied to three or four early action schools, that's great. But if you've got another three or four schools that you need to apply to, this is not time to sort of pause and, and just sort of hold up and, and wait and see what kind of decisions come in. Um, what, what do you sort of tell your students in terms of uh, motivation to make sure that they're keeping on task with their applications going forward? 
Well, I always I say exactly what you say. Like, until our original list is totally finalized, you've got every essay ready to go, you've got your eyes out and your teeth crossed, and we're not writing anything else. Um, and then I do say, though, you know, if it's December 15th and you've got everything done for those and you still want to add more schools, like, again, have at it. That's, that's your call. I think the, the one thing, you know, the more schools we add, um, I always remember what somebody, one of our colleagues always used to say, they say, how many yeses do you need and how many no's can you handle, right, in relation to your list? You know, when you start adding schools, you probably had no business applying to the first time. Now we're inviting in potentially a fair amount of rejection letters. And while I'm a very big believer that 17-year-olds need to learn how to deal with rejection with grace and dignity because it will follow them, there's going to be rejection at all stages of your life at some point, and you need to learn how to deal with it. And that's true, we need to deal with nine of them, nine letters of rejection, right, or five or six, right? Because even if you got into some of the schools you wanted, hearing somebody say no to you can be a real blow to your ego. So that ego that was riding high from getting in over here may not feel so great in April when those four Ivy Leagues that you probably shouldn't have been applying to begin with or those four reach schools of whatever, you know, whatever is a reach school for you, um, say no to you. So I think you also want to think about, you know, think about that. Do you have uh, at this stage, do you have any students that come to you and want to retake tests uh, or just, you know, sort of see if they can get one last test score that's going to help make them competitive for schools? Uh, and if they do, what, what's your advice for them at this stage in the process when we hit November? I think, you know, if you are applying, everything's going to be due, generally speaking, by January, which means at this stage in the game, you only have one test date left, and that's in December, because you've already missed the registration deadline for November. Um, so we're really talking about November, December test date, and I think, you know, I owe you, well, I say kind of what I would say to you at any stage when a student wants to retake a test is what have you done differently that's going to make this test score different? I remember yeah. our colleague, Ken, used to say, who used to teach SAT and ACT prep, if you're expecting a dramatically different score between two tests, you should be doing something dramatically different, right? As I always say, if you take a bio test on Monday and you get a B on it, and you take that same bio test a month from now that's on, you know, it's not the exact same test, but it's on a similar body of knowledge, and you studied the same way you did the first time, you're probably going to get a B again, right? You might get a B plus, you might get a B minus, different day, different test, but you're probably not going to get an A plus, and you're probably not going to get an F, right? This, SATs and ACTs are no really that different in that philosophy, right? It's still testing a similar body of knowledge. And so while you may move the noodle a little up or a little down, which I always remind students too, remember, you could get worse. Right? That's always a possibility, too. Um, <laughs> I never thought of it. You know, unless you're doing something significantly different between these tests, it's probably not going to move the needle a lot. So if you need another 50 points or 70 points to really look much more competitive because you're right on the fringe and that would really help your case, okay, then I'm okay with that. If you're still 200 points from being in the ballpark, this is probably not happening anyway. Right, right. So it's it's really sort of being strategic about how you're going to prepare for the test and also thinking about the value of the score that you could get uh, within the context of your full process. Uh, and, I, you know, I, right. I like to sort of think at this point, you know, time is really the limiting factor that we have with everything. And if you have to take away from, you know, your essays and your schoolwork in order to prepare vigorously for another SAT, and that causes grades to decline or it sort of depresses the value of your essays, the improvement you get in a score might not actually be an overall improvement to your application. Uh, so, you know, there are so many different factors that are connected here, and, I, you know, I think you want to consider them all as you make that kind of decision. Um, for sure. 
All right, Karen, uh, we're going to take a break. Will, will you stick around uh, for the second segment, talk essays with me? I will. All right, awesome. We will see you after the break for a conversation around college essay supplements. Don't go anywhere. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Inner Revolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back to the program. Hey, Karen, guess what? The Cubs are still World Series champions. It's they are, degrees. and will be for the next 300 and some odd days. And it's 80 degrees in November in D.C., and I don't it see is? a cloud in the sky here in Portland. Um, so it might be time to talk about a higher power at work. It is. It is. I always <laughs> said I wasn't sure whether to uh, change my will because Armageddon was on its way or to buy a lottery ticket. Really unclear on that one, but yes. Right. So let's let's talk a little bit about about faith in the college application process. I, that's probably my worst segue ever, but uh, I thought I'd seize it. Since <laughs> one last I appreciate night. that the effort. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, so you attended a Lutheran college in Northwest Indiana. You worked for Georgetown a Catholic School in D.C. Uh, we've both worked with dozens of kids who've applied to religious institutions. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about some specific essay supplements that make use of faith, but also just talk about faith in terms of the college essay process. Um, 
in general, just without talking about schools specifically, do you encourage students to share uh, their faith? Do you discourage students from sharing or, or does your advice tend to change depending on uh, institutions that we're talking about when they're crafting an essay? Well, I think I always ask a student kind of what's the goal about sharing your faith, right? Is it direct response to a prompt? Is the way the prompt, what the prompt asks about directly linked to your faith, right? If it's talking about something you're passionate about and you're passionate about community service because you, you know, that's, that's what you believe in because of your faith in God, that if you, you know, moral responsibility or whatever, right? Then I think it's a natural progression. Um, I think talking about faith and God, like politics and like a handful of other topics, can be um, dicey depending on how you write about it. Um, and so I think it's not so much about if you write about it, but so much how you write about it and being really thoughtful in your response. Is there ever a caution for students who maybe um, practice a different faith from one that is recognized at an institution uh, in terms of sort of staying away from that topic? Um, or is it, again, sort of how you approach the topic that matters? I'm asking, you know, I had a student um, who wrote an essay for the University of California system. And he just happened to mention that uh, he was uh, he practiced Islam. And he was wondering if that would be problematic, if that could be perceived as being problematic in the essay process. It wasn't anything sort of like proselytizing or, uh, you know, taking a position. Uh, but he was just worried about the mere mention of faith in the process. What, what do you sort of think about that? Should students be um, cognizant of even bringing it up uh, as being a possible negative? I think, I th- you know, I think it, it, I generally would err on, say, of bringing, I would say to bring it up if it's important to you, and again, it's appropriate based on the prompt, um, and if it's fundamental to who you are, because it's fundamental to who you are, and the person reading it, it it's a red flag to them for whatever reason, whatever you're writing, then perhaps this is the wrong institution for you. Right? Because right. if you're looking for an institution that's very welcoming of people of a different faith, whatever that faith may be, and, and this essay is off-putting to them, then perhaps this is not the most open community for you, and this is not a place you want to find yourself anyway. Um, right. You know, I'm thinking about if someone had written that, you know, a, 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 you know, if they were Jewish or Muslim and had applied to either my alma mater um, or Georgetown, you know, would that have, it would have gone over fine in, George, in the, um, both probably offices, but I think the environment might have been different where they found themselves, right? Um, Georgetown likes to think of itself as a national university, and Georgetown is run by Jesuits. They always like to call Georgetown as kind of like diet Catholic, right? I always joke that if you saw somebody on the library steps with a cigar and a whiskey, it was probably one of the priests, right? So, you know, I think part of the Jesuit philosophy, too, is, is an openness about the journey of faith. They're more interested in you exploring your faith than what your faith is in, necessarily, um, in, in, at least in a teaching perspective. And I'll never forget giving a, a presentation for Georgetown at a, in this huge hotel room, and somebody, and I had an alum with me, who I didn't actually know at all, um, and someone came up to us and said, you know, I'm Jewish. You know, how do you feel that being, a, you know, a Jew on Georgetown campus would be as your Catholic institution? And my dilemma sitting next to me um, said, actually, I'm Jewish, which I didn't know. And he said, and I really firmly believe that Georgetown actually made me a better Jew. He said, because they forced me to, you know, talk about my faith and think about where I was on my journey and think about, you know, where I would like to be on my journey. He said, I really feel like that actually enhanced my faith. Um, So I think there's going to be schools like that 
that are really open in, and then there's going to be schools that that's not going to be. You know, if you go to Liberty University, that's not going to go over so well, right? Because that's not their philosophy there. You know, they have a different, a different viewpoint of religion. And so um, I think... I think you shouldn't shy away from it. It's fundamental to who you are because their reaction to it was a good deciding factor on whether or not this is a place that's going to embrace you or not. Right. It's interesting you mentioned Liberty. I actually did a search. We have this great document that has all of the essay prompts for, for mo- the most common schools our students apply to. And I just did a search for faith. And I think two of two schools had faith even in the prompt. And one was Liberty. And it, the, the question is, how will your personal faith and beliefs allow you to contribute to Liberty's mission to develop Christ-centered leaders? And so that's an indication that they're looking for a very specific kind of faith. Whereas Santa Clara, which is the other one uh, that has faith in the essay prompt, um, asks, uh, you know, Santa Clara's strategic vision promises to educate citizens of leaders of competence, conscience, and compassion, and cultivate knowledge and faith to build a more humane, just, and sustainable world. And they ask, what aspect of SCU's strategic vision appeals to you and why? So that's more of an indication that faith is a part of cultivating knowledge and competence and conscience within the context of the entire institution. It's very much like Georgetown as a, as a Jesuit institution. Um, how can students kind of take clues from these essay prompts in terms of the role of talking about faith with their response to the, uh, to the question? Well, I, I would repeat what I say all the time to students about to write an essay, which is to say, read the prompts. A lot of times students like to write an essay based on the prompt they'd like to answer, not the one they've actually been asked. Um, so mm-hmm. that bears repeating here. Um, I think, again, to your point, any college's essay prompts often are a good reflection of the school. Um, you, know, I, you know, you and I were talking earlier, you know, if you talk, look at University of Chicago, has these notoriously kind of quirky prompts that are kind of a little unusual, extremely cerebral, um, I look at them and, like, run away, um, which is good. But they're a good indicator of the kind of students who are attracted to Chicago, right? It's kind of a quirky, cerebral place, right? right? So if those prompts don't interest you, this is probably not the right school for you. This is the same thing. Look about what they're asking, to your point, right? One is talking about kind of discipleship and, and kind of spreading, you know, the good word at, at one school. And one is more about service and caring for others, right? They're both Christian universities, but they're focused in both of those schools is very different, right? They're taking a very different tack than what they, that they, you know, are, are, you know, it is important to them and what they stress, be it in the classroom or outside of the classroom. And so I always say, you know, first thing in when you're thinking about these is just because a school is religious, they can be very different in terms of their religiosity. So, you know, I always, you know, people say, oh, I don't want to go to a religious school. And I'll say, well, there's really various levels here, right? When I worked at Georgetown, people would say, well, how are you different than Notre Dame, right? You're both Catholic, you're both really, really selective, um, you're both reasonably the same size, you're close to the same size, and I'd say, you know, one of the major differences is that Notre Dame is extremely Catholic, right? It's, you know, there are crosses on the walls. There are, um, in every classroom, I believe, um, I mean, you're, this, is, this is a place that's not just Christian, it's extremely Catholic. Whereas Georgetown likes to see itself as a national university first and a Catholic university second. And while we definitely had plenty of Catholics on, this, on campus, it, I don't think it was probably with the major draw to Georgetown. Um, and so here are two schools that look very similar on paper, but their religiosity was different. Um, and so I think, you know, one is seeing if the prompt addresses the kind of religious focus you're interested in and also learning that just because the school is religious doesn't mean it's similar to a school over, you know, school B and school C can be very different 
even though they have that title of a religious-based school. And, you know, the, the observations you're making are about, you know, they're, they're sort of a result of being an expert in the field and knowing a little bit about Georgetown and, and Notre Dame from having worked there or having visited those institutions. But you can also see that indication just in the prompt itself. Um, Georgetown's personal statement starts with the phrase, as Georgetown is a diverse community, the admissions committee would like to know right. more about you. Right. So that is an indication that they're looking for diversity, whereas the Notre Dame prompt um, ask this question uh, where they say, Blessed Basil Moreau, founder of the Congregation of Holy Cross, believe that to provide a true education, the mind will not be cultivated at the expense of the heart. That's much more religious, right? Um, and so that tells you a little bit just within the prompt about the, the nature of the community there. Uh, and I think that's Correct. important for students to be able to, to understand. Um, what about schools about that, that you... Prompt doesn't go ahead. Interest you? Maybe this is not the right fit for you. It's right, you look at that and you say, say challenging, I don't know. but it may not align with your own personal value. Right, and I think it's also important to be informed about the prompt. You and I were talking offline about Villanova's prompt. Um, they have option B uh, for, you know, it's just a short um, response. And the option B for their prompt is become what you are not yet, which is a St. Augustine quote. And the question is, when you daydream, who do you hope to become in the future? Uh, so do you want to share? Do you want to share this sort of story from one of our colleagues? I think this is a this is an important example of what to be this careful. This is a perfect example of yeah. yeah. So you know, what do you hope to become? What are you not yet? Right. That's the that's the prompt. Um, we had a colleague um, who was reading an essay from a student who answered that prompt by saying she wanted to be a sports agent and couldn't wait to make all this money being a sports agent right. and. No, all I could think of is, I think perhaps you've missed the point. Like, this is, you've written this in the exact opposite. Like, this is, this is the exact opposite of what they're trying to hear, right? You may want to be a sports agent. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be a sports agent. Um, but kind of talking about why you want to do something so that you can make, you know, a lot of money is perhaps missing the point of the Augustinian values that we're, we're espousing here, right? Um, and so I think that that essay, while I'm sure very honest and genuine, which I appreciate in an essay, um, would have bombed in committee, right? Because this is a person who is showing that they don't have the same values as what this college wants you to have and, 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 and you know, and, and wants to develop within you. Now, that might have been a good reason to admit her, I suppose, <laughs> so they could try to bring her along. Um, and, sure. and you never know how someone's going to read that. But again, that's a perfect example of where somebody has clearly not understood the nature of the prompt. Right. And one thing that's that's really interesting about this, and Loyola Marymount does this as well. Loyola Marymount's another religious institution. Um, they have, uh, and in this case, there's a quote that's provided and then a question that's attached to the quote. Now, if Villanova was just interested in when you daydream, who do you co- hope to become in the future? That's what they would ask. But they've also put a quote there, and the quote is attributed to St. Augustine. And so you want to understand a little bit about who St. Augustine is and why he may have said this and what that says about the values of the institution. So don't just run to the end of the prompt and find the question and respond to the question, but really think about what that question means in the spirit of the quotation that's provided. Um, And Loyola Marymount actually has some very lengthy quotations and uh, just conversations that they include before the actual response is is required from the student. And you really want to understand what the meaning of that is before you jump into this, just, I'm just going to answer the question to be done with it, right? Um, what about, I, I have sort of a question about 
religion in the context of schools that are non-religious, but that sort of open the door to um, these kinds of conversations through community-based essays. The University of Washington has an essay of this type. The University of Michigan has an essay of this type, which uh, our colleagues talked about last week on the show. Um, What do you think that the role of religion is within a community essay that sort of asks what you can contribute to the university that's, that's maybe a little bit different or adds diversity? I mean, I think some people, their faith is very much at the core of how they see themselves. Um, some people's faith is, is, is very much a, a part of who they are, but they don't necessarily associate, uh, or they don't feel it's a, a public of a display, or they don't associate themselves in that way, as, as um, seeing it in that light. So I think, though, if that's how you, if you view yourself as part of a community, um, whatever that may be, um, I think it's fine to voice it. Um, but I think you always want to address any time where you, you kind of talk about it, like understanding that the person, you know, reading this may be a person uh, not of faith, of, the, of a different faith, of, um, of, of have a, a kind of a bias against people who seem overly religious, right? So you have to remember that you're not sure of who your audience is going to be, and you have to be thoughtful about that in writing about your faith. So I think it's good to be genuine, but again, you need to be thoughtful, about how you see yourself in this community um, in, in making sure that you, it seems inclusive as opposed to exclusive. Like, I'm in part of this community, and I'm so glad that I have kind of this thing that you don't have, um, as opposed to this is where I feel I belong, and here's the benefits of, of, of what I've gotten out of being in this community. Um, I think that always goes over well, that kind of um, that inclusiveness, that positivity, of, of any topic, frankly, religion and God is, is no exception. Um, and I think you really want to think about how that's going to go over with the person reading it, too. Is, okay, if, this, if I'm talking about how I believe in X, if the person reading this believes in Y, is this still going to go over okay? And again, I'm not right. interested in necessarily being PC or not being genuine, but you have to be thoughtful about the person reading it. And I think as long as it's genuine and open, and, and, and thoughtful, you're generally speaking going to be okay. Right. And one other sort of uh, another example of, of a thing to sort of be cautious of is, is you don't want to attribute um, a particular set of values to sort of an exclusive cause. So you don't want to say that I believe this and this can only be believed by being a person of faith. Because if a reader doesn't have that particular sort of set of beliefs but has your same values – that's also a way that you are missing a connection that might potentially be there. You know, I worked at Reed College, which is typically on the top 20 list of, um, you know, students who are atheistic. And, uh, you know, I still could appreciate a good essay um, from a student who was religious, but it had to be one that was not necessarily coming out and, um, you know, sort of making religion feel like an other within the community, but one that was sort of a core part of who that person was and who the person was, was the most important thing. Exactly. All right. I think that's, I think we've, we've covered it. Did we, did we stick to the plan there? That was pretty good. Pretty good. Excellent. All right. Awesome. Not Thanks, as Karen. As I thought it was. No, you were terrific. Thanks for being on the show today. Um, have Thank a great you. time celebrating. again. Yeah, don't overdo it. Um, And uh, when we come back, uh, we'll have a new guest on the show to talk about work and the college admission process. Don't go away.
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back for our final segment of the day. Uh, My final guest is a terrific new addition to the College Coach team, Emily Toffelmeyer, a former admission officer with the University of Southern California. Welcome, Emily. Thank you, Ian. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks. I really appreciate that. Did I say your last name right, by the way? You did. Yeah, Poppelmeyer. Okay. Pretty phonetic. Perfect. Wonderful. Um, all right. So we're going to talk a little bit about paid work. And um, mm-hmm. I get a lot of questions from parents about the role of paid work in the college application process. Um, and I'm, I think I'm most frequently asked a question that seems really obvious to you and me, but I think it's probably a good idea to leave with, lead with it. Um, which is, can I put my work experience on my college application? Um, 100%. Yeah, I, I've gotten that question before, too. And you're right, it did kind of seem obvious to me. But I think that because the person applying is a student and they're involved in school, there might be this idea that the activity resume is just that, only school activities. So I've even had people ask me, the things I do unaffiliated with school and the community, can I include those? And, of course, yes, you can. And jobs count for that as well. Um, so I think especially if you're not otherwise very involved because you have a time commitment to work, it's so much, it's very important to make sure you include that work on the resume so we can actually see how you're spending your time outside of school if you otherwise have a little bit of a thin resume going on. 
Right. That's a really important observation because you might say, oh, man, this kid's not involved in any clubs at school. But if that's because he's doing you know, 25 hours a week working at the local grocer, then that's that's perfectly explicable. And so whenever we talk about extracurricular activities, um, people start like, that's just school. But the strict definition would be anything that is not a part of your coursework is extracurricular. And you want to try and find a space to put that on uh, your college application. So why do we why do we think work is important in the college process and how might work be sort of perceived differently from other extracurricular activities where a student could sort of choose to spend their time? Sure. And, and I would answer that from a few different perspectives. Like one is a very personal one where all throughout high school, I had jobs. I was not very involved in school. I honestly didn't really care about school activities. There weren't very many that interested me. Um, aside from being a photographer for the yearbook, all I did was mm-hmm. always have a part-time job. Um, but then, of course, reading applications at USC, um, I like to see the jobs on the activity list because it reminded me of all the qualities that I had, I think, developed while I was working as a teenager. Um, so those were things like time management, responsibility, commitment, um, the ability to interact with others. Um, I was a shy kid. I was very shy, probably another reason why I didn't love school activities. Um, but at work, in the workplace, you have no choice. If you're working like I was at, you know, a store in the mall or at Porter's Books, um, you have to talk to people. You have to have a conversation and be outgoing and answer questions. Um, So for me, it develops, I think, responsibility and time management, but it also helped me come out of my shell, develop my personality and confidence. Um, And then a whole other perspective I had from it was working at USC in our office, we had student interns, so current USC students who were paid interns in our office. And nine times out of ten, you could just tell the student who had prior work experience when we hired them. They were much better at problem solving. Um, they didn't seem to need to run to help for every little question that came up for every little situation. It seemed like they had already built up the skills to be able to figure things out themselves, take responsibility, and engage with the outside population um, in a more mature, clear way than students who had never worked before. Yeah, I mean, you're making me sort of hate my high school self that never had a job. And this is actually, this <laughs> is actually, goal, actually, that was my main I, goal for today. I appreciate it. We're glad you could have you on the show. But no, I, uh, I sometimes my wife and I discuss this for our kids, because my my parents sort of said, your job is school, and you, you have a lot of activities. And so that's going to be where you're spending your time. And, um, you know, my wife is sort of like, no, our kids are absolutely working, because she says the same thing that you did. Like, the experience of working is different. You are you have to sort of commit yourself in a different way than you do with a school activity, and that is mm-hmm. valuable in and of itself. Um, and it sort of underscores this idea that look, we're here to talk about college admission, and that's that's what our role is in terms of our expertise for this process. But the objective here is to grow up and to learn how to contribute to society. And an application sort of tells the story of what you've achieved and who you are, but that doesn't answer the question of what should you be and how should you go about having certain experiences. And work can answer that question in a really different way from other types of extracurricular activities. Um, yeah. And, and for me, you know, I, since I was shy, I was already a responsible, mature kid. Like I just was. That's just how I was born. That's how I was raised. <laughs> so that wasn't an issue. But I think, you know, if you're a parent listening and you have a student who is shy and needs some confidence, a job's a great idea. But on the flip side, if you feel like your student maybe needs to be taken down a peg and uh, be humbled a little bit, I can tell you working retail, customer service, a restaurant job, any of those uh, really character building experiences. 
Right. And you've got to try and hold it down and you have to, there are rules and expectations and address code and you've got to be on time and all of those things are, are important. Um, and I'm, you know, I have a student who actually, I was so glad that he had a job this year because it helped him to write his best college essay, actually. I mean, he, he was able to talk about being a cashier and connecting with his coworkers and interacting with customers. And, you know, he's a shy kid who, didn't have a lot to say, but this job obviously helped him to open up a little bit more. So there's there's definite value to be had there. Um, yeah, one of my there- favorite um, essays actually was, uh, I don't know if you're not familiar with Hot Dog on a Stick, Ian, you probably are since you're on the West Coast. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, so if you're not familiar with Hot Dog on a Stick, then Google Hot Dog on a Stick Uniform. Uh, one of my favorite essays I ever read was a girl talking about her job at this restaurant um, and how it is kind of a humbling experience because you have to wear a very silly outfit and you also have to, in front of customers, churn a large barrel of lemonade on a regular basis. And that actually made for a really funny, engaging, and sweet essay. So I think, if anything, a nice side effect of a job can be an interesting kind of different take on your essay. Yeah, it, it, I'm looking at those uniforms right now and they're, um, they're incredible. Yeah, primary the colors. And the, they still wear the hat. You know, the hat's the big part of that costume. Very, very important. It's sort of like George Michael Bluth in the banana stand. Um, you know, that's how you build character. <laughs> you're sort of growing up. Uh, so what types of jobs? I mean, we're talking a lot about retail service-based jobs. Um, is there something different about those kinds of jobs in terms of what they teach? Or, you know, what is all work created equally? Um, or are there certain types of things that you would have cared about more as an admission officer with a little bit of a bias towards students who worked uh, as you were reading applications? Yeah, um, I think I think there's a huge variety of jobs you can choose from, and I think in back back in my day, um, when I was in high school in the late '90s, and and where I lived too, there weren't really opportunities for internships or professional types of jobs for students. Everybody I knew usually worked in fast food or at the mall. Um, this was in Las Vegas, um, and there weren't really opportunities for things that were connected to future majors or were a little more impressive, but. Some students, especially depending on where you live, um, like for example at USC, we get a lot of applicants from the Silicon Valley area, and a lot of those students had access to family members or parents or family friends who could get them positions in labs, in hospitals, and things like that. So I think that type of employment is really valid too, not just because it's work experience, but also because it does give you a chance to be exposed to a career you might be interested in and decide whether or not you like it. So I think that whether you are lifeguarding or tutoring at a center after school or flipping burgers, I think all of those jobs are valid. They all teach you something. Um, I know in my experience, my very first job, a summer job, was in the law office, just a one-woman law office with a family friend, um, and it taught me over the course of the summer, I think it probably only actually took a couple of days for me to realize that I did not want to work in law ever, um, and I had no aspiration to go to law school, which before that I thought I had. So for me... I learned how to uh, use a typewriter and and read legal documents, um, but I also learned that the law field was not ultimately for me. So I think in that way it can be valuable too. Yeah, and I I think it is important to sort of say that anything that you're doing as a student that is structured, that's organized, where you're getting some value out of it is worthwhile and is something that colleges want to hear about. There are degrees of value, but you shouldn't say like, oh, I'm not going to do that because it's not the best thing for me to do for my college application. If you see an opportunity that you like, that you want to pursue, I would say go for it. Um, I would also say that if you've got a choice between going down to the mall and turning in an application and getting a job versus helping out with your mom's business or your dad's business, 
I would recommend, you know, I, I like that first option a little bit better because it takes a little mm-hmm. bit more independence and initiative and gumption to do it. And one thing that students don't often recognize about the application is that you have to put your parent's employer on the app. And if you put that you also worked for that employer, for that family business, you see that it's sort of like, you know, dad just gave you a job, right? So if you, that's not something that I would turn down if it were the only option for a summer. It's certainly better than nothing. But I think there is some special value for like submitting a resume and starting a job the, the old fashioned way. Yeah, I, I agree. I've seen that plenty of times where I think, oh, that's a pretty impressive, you know, summer internship at a dental office that student got. And then I look at the parent employee information and realize that the parents are both dentists. So it all kind of makes sense. I think there's something to be said for making a little effort to go outside of your family circle to get that employee experience. Right. And it's, there's, yeah, it's, it's, you can fall back on it if you need to, but you don't want to sort of look at that as the first option, especially if, you know, there's something that you'd like to explore that's, that's totally disconnected from what your, your family does. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about sort of how the work experience plays out in terms of the application. What are the ways that students are able to present what they've done um, as a, a paid worker uh, during their high school career? Right. Well, I think the most obvious one is what we talked about at the beginning, just putting it on a list of activities, indicating where you work, what your position is, how many hours per week it takes, and using what is usually a very small space to uh, describe what it is you do at that job. Um, And any special tasks or responsibilities you may be given. Like, you're probably not going to be a manager since you're only 16 or 17, but maybe you've done such a good job that you know, you're trusted to perform certain tasks or you get to be a shift supervisor or things like that. So you can talk about that. Um, the essay, of course, is, is also a possible place to discuss it. Um, and, and potentially maybe a letter of recommendation from mm-hmm. your supervisor. I mean, I know we want to be wary sometimes of overwhelming an admission officer with letters of recommendation. Like, please don't be the person who sends five letters. But um, if you feel like your boss or supervisor can comment on traits that come out in you when you're in the workplace that probably don't come out in the classroom, then I would recommend maybe having that person write a letter. Um, because if you were like me and pretty quiet in school and not always willing to raise your hand, but then on the work floor, you are much more engaged with people and outgoing um, and maybe given a lot of responsibility. I think that's going to be really valuable for the colleges to hear and reassure them about the fact that you were not very involved in your high school activities, but that you were building this world and relationships outside as well. Yeah, I I think that is almost universally the example I give of a supplemental letter of recommendation that is worthwhile um, because the the supervisor sees you in a totally different context. And if you've got to, you know, count the tail at the end of the day or open or close or be the only person on shift and be responsible in that manner, it's very different from asking questions in English class. Uh, and it says something about your ability to be independent uh, and to work hard. And that, those are traits that are really valuable when it comes to academic work as well. Right. Um, yeah, and that's another good reason to not take a job from your parents in their office because a letter of recommendation coming from your parent honestly not going to hold much weight. But if the letter that, is coming from an outside employer or supervisor, much more powerful. Very good. That's that's extremely insightful <laughs> as well. Uh, thanks, Emily, uh, for being here. And I wish we had a little bit more time so you could berate me about my lack of work experience. But uh, we're doing the same job now. So it's good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. You too. Take care. Thank you. 
Uh, folks, I'm really glad you could join us today for our show. Um, if you're a longtime listener, you know that there are a lot of different ways to connect with College Coach. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash college coach, and you can follow our blog at blog.getintocollege.com. Whether on the radio waves or over the web, we're here to help you make sense of the application process. Next week, I'll be back in the hosting chair once again to talk about the University of California system. They've got a totally new essay assignment for this year, and if you're struggling with it, um, tune into our show. We'll be talking all about how to approach those new personal insight questions. Thanks again to Karen and Emily for all their time and expertise. And a brief word, um, next Tuesday is election day. I'll keep my politics out of this podcast, but do want to encourage you all to get out and vote. This election matters a lot. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.